Welcome to Our Political Moment, the stories behind the structure. Each episode, we bring you stories around Philadelphia that demonstrate how structural oppression is ingrained in our lives. I'm one of your hosts, Kelly Morton, and today we're going to explore the state of the Philadelphia school system. I first heard our storyteller speak at a fundraiser for school funding last fall. At that time, she pointed out that as a student, she didn't have a lot of power, but she hoped that by speaking, others would amplify her words to create change. Let's hear firsthand from Nayeli. I'm Nayeli Perez. I am 18 as of February 1st. I am a senior at the Academy at Palumbo. I am a really big animal person. I actually want to be a vet, specifically for reptiles and birds. Getting into Palumbo was a little bit different for me because I didn't apply in the 8th grade. I actually was in the ninth grade, so of course I'd be starting as a sophomore. They, of course, needed my test scores, my GPA, and all of that. And because I was at a different school where I didn't have the same level of education, my test scores weren't as good. They were actually a little bit below Palumbo's range, so I was very surprised when I got in. It was kind of like my reach school. (laughs) Getting that acceptance letter meant that I wouldn't be confined to my normal circles and that I'd get to see more of Philadelphia. So I actually got to visit Palumbo for a shadow day beforehand. Got a little sense of what the school was about earlier. Even then, I think what struck me the most was how unkept the school is. Even my mom noticed it and she was kind of taken aback a little and she was pushing me to stay more at my charter school because it's a very nice building, I'm I'm not going to lie. But still, I decided to go to Palumbo and then once I was there, I realized the extent that it was underkept. The bathrooms are routinely understocked, not just day after day, like week after week. And our classrooms rarely, if ever, get swept is always something very superficial. Building conditions aren't the best, but I took creative writing. I realized that I actually liked writing. And then from there, I took theater class, which that was very out of character. And But it turned out to be an experience that I really enjoyed. And I also got to take a journalism class. My journalism teacher really pushed me to do things. He was kind of a cheerleader, always trying to push me to do more and more, even if I thought that I couldn't. Because of him, I am participating in a workshop with the Inquirer, and now I'm getting to learn about photojournalism and all of that. I think Palumbo has not only seeing new parts of the city, but new parts of myself. Nayeli clearly loves her teachers and her school, but also points out the failing infrastructure that surrounds her. The neglected repairs came to a head this past September when the ceiling of Palumbo came crashing down. I usually get to school pretty early, so the lines weren't that bad. But after we scanned in and went through the metal detectors, we were ushered in the auditorium. I found my friends and I was like, hey, what's going on? Why are we here? There's there's no assembly going on. And it was just like, yeah, the ceiling collapsed. We were in the auditorium for a while before our principal came out and addressed us and she basically said, hey, this accident happened, we couldn't have foreseen this. After that, it was a week and a half of a third of the building being off limits. The doors were all taped up. It seemed like out of a movie, the CDC was going to come in in these hazmat suits or something. The cafeteria also was off limits, so everyone had to eat lunch in the auditorium. Yeah, it was just really convenient, especially for a school that's so big. That first month, 
it was just very hot with everything else going on it just compounded it was just really annoying to be in school some of my friends they just didn't come i couldn't blame them you know no one was telling us what solutions they were considering the time frame none of that yeah we just had to deal with it the ceiling collapsing made Nayeli start looking at the condition of her school in a new light for the most part, I hadn't really thought about it much until this year. Like, of course, you notice things like, oh, like the halls are dirty and the bathrooms are dirty and everything's dirty. But beyond that, I didn't really think much of it. I was just like, it's a public school in Philadelphia. Like, what else should I expect from this? But this year, just talking more with my teachers and talking more with organizations like the Philadelphia Student Union and going to an event that the WE caucus held at a high school, I just realized that it goes way deeper than just the ceiling collapsing because that just happened once. This year especially, I realized that there are so many more things wrong with my school. There was a hole in the ceiling since last year that was leaking, several other parts of the ceiling were leaking, and you know, they just put some drywall up, it looks, it looks nice and fresh, but it just started leaking again a couple of weeks ago and now we have like buckets collecting water out every day yeah so the building conditions are just really really poor but the level of education that we're getting it's the complete opposite i don't see how a building so bad but students and teachers that are regarded as the third best in the city like, why, why is that happening? It just doesn't make sense to me. It's not a coincidence that this is a school district where a majority of the students are students of color. I think that if it wasn't that way, none of this would be happening. There would be no question about whether that paint on the wall has lead in it or that tile on the floor has asbestos or anything that could jeopardize the safety of children whenever i talk to people who don't go to school in philadelphia or go to a public school in philadelphia and tell them yeah we got relocated because the ceiling was leaking and there's like multiple instances where lead paint was found in my school and they're like oh my god like are you okay how is that happening there's no difference in achievement everywhere there's students who really want to succeed and put in all the efforts they can to do that there's only little specific places where the students who want to achieve aren't given all of the resources that they need to help them in the direction that they want to go in a lot of my friends just talk about how they don't feel prepared for college or they don't think that they know that they're not doing so well but they don't think that there's faculty that can help them get to where they want to be that's directly connected to a lack of counselors and a lack of resources. Of course, my teachers are always there and I feel that I have a strong support system. There are things that they can't help me with, specifically in the college application process. At Palumbo, there's over a thousand students and there's only two counselors. There are 250 seniors, again, only two counselors that have to deal with everything from sending transcripts and helping you with your finances, writing letters of recommendation, and there's just so much stuff to do just with the seniors. So then when you add the rest of the school that they have to be available for, it's ridiculous that they're expected to do that much work. For a school district that wants to see its graduation rates go up, wants to see students doing well in college, 
to not be investing in counselors and people that are there to help that transition into college. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I just don't feel prepared. If anything, I'm really scared about what's going to happen in the next couple of months because there is so much uncertainty and I don't know if there's really anything that can prepare you for that transition. I am excited about, again, seeing new things. I've lived in Philadelphia for like 14 years and I just want to go away, you know. So for that part, I am excited, but I also have siblings who are 12 and 9, so of course they're still going to be in school for quite a while. I don't see my family moving anytime soon, so they're going to have to go through everything I did, which I really don't like the thought of. Nayeli's story and the state of Palumbo Academy are not unique in our city. In fact, students in schools all across our district are dealing with poor conditions, lack of resources, and inadequate staffing. The conditions in our schools and the experiences of our students compared to those across the state are not accidental. We're going to hear from Kendra Brooks from Our City, Our Schools about how our public schools reached this point of crisis. My name is Kendra Brooks. I am a parent, an organizer, grandma, own a small business called At Your Reach. I teach restorative practices and community and family engagement. I kind of stumbled into organizing, or I've been doing it and didn't realize that's what it was. My children's school was slated to become a charter, and I organized my community to vote up against the charter, and it had never happened anywhere in the country, and people was like, oh, this is really great. And I kind of stumbled into this next life of mine. So I was volunteering in the school when all of it happened. And it kind of started this pathway. So I've always been actively involved in schools. However, organizing towards saving my neighborhood school moved me more into professional organizing. You were also involved in the fight against the School Reform Commission. Can you tell us more about what the School Reform Commission was? The city of Philadelphia didn't have money to fund its schools. One of the mayors, along with the governor, discussed a way to bail us out of this condition that we were in when it required for a state takeover. So the state took over our school board and created the School Reform Commission. They were making horrible decisions which defunded our schools. They released a bunch of teachers, counselors, nurses, which were core staff in our school, allowed money to go to charters instead of funding traditional public education. And during that time, what woke me up was the charterization of my school. What they wanted to do was dismantle a functional public school and hand it over to a charter. So for me, the School Reform Commission represented like the dismantling of education. So we had this body of folks that did not have any deep connections with public schools or communities of Philadelphia, I'm be honest, black and brown communities. So during the years they're there, they have dismantled communities, started with the closing of schools. I back up a little bit before the charterization, it was the closing. I think they had put a list of 64 schools to close. Um, But then after that, they came with this renaissance design program where they were merging schools, closing schools, and turning schools into charters, like a combination of all these things without input from the community without allowing the community to kind of design or give clarity as to why some of the schools are failing. And they never took into account that you also remove thousands of staff from the school district and then expected it to still progress. One of the workshops that I teach is like Beyond Donuts. You know, traditionally when you think about PTA mom and homeschool mom, you bring donuts and fundraising. I did that. 
So I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do, missing what was behind the curtain. And I felt like I stepped into the matrix. Like, you know, you pop the pill and you can't look back. That's kind of what happened. Once we won the fight to our school, we saved the teacher's contract and the teachers finally did get awarded a contract. We put more focus on dismantling the school reform commission, which required us to lobby at the state level, lobby at the local level, even lobby the school reform commissioners because they had to vote to abolish themselves. Closer to the end of the fight, to end the school reform commission, they had just appointed two new commissioners, actually three. And it was significant that we had them dismantle themselves within this year before the election. So we worked really hard to lobby two ways. We lobbied towards who those three people should be, and also three or four that were remaining, making sure they were willing to vote to dissolve themselves, as well as lobbying Mayor Kenny and a couple other folks. So we did that like over a year and a half. Half, I think it was a tough fight. We didn't. It was a fight that we wasn't really sure what it would look like because of the flip side. If we end the school reform commission, what's next? Yeah, when we finally won and we got a mayorly appointed school board, our next organizing strategy was like, who's going to be on the school board? Organizing around first against the school reform commission or moving towards a new Philadelphia board of education. It's been like a two to three year experience, and we couldn't have done it without parents and teachers and even just community members just coming together, uniting for one cause. You had pointed out that the School Reform Commission was making decisions for these communities that were largely black and brown communities. And when we look at the makeup of Pennsylvania, it's majority white and our students are majority children and students of color. How do you think that played out in the School Reform Commission and in school funding in general in our state? I know Powerhead did a lot of research around equitable funding and equal funding. And one of the things that we found that Philadelphia was 45% lower in funding than any school district near our side. And that's definitely a racial issue. When I think across the state, everyone wants to pit Philadelphia like, oh, Philadelphia. I'm not recognizing that we're also the money hub for the state. The state makes money off of Philadelphia. So when I think about what school funding should look like, to me, I automatically go back to, you know, white supremacy. Sometimes it's hard for people to get past the fact that all children should receive equitable funding. And I think when we think of equitable funding, it sounds like a great thing until we think of areas that are predominantly black and brown children. Then that conversation shifts to something else. We're still fighting for funding. So the fair funding formula traditionally is a percentage of the state funding. A percentage of money goes to various counties and school districts based on a formula. Traditionally, the formula has not been fair or equitable depending on the financial stability of the district. Poverty is a thing that homelessness is a couple of other things that weren't factored in. When they distribute this money, they talked about various aspects of it. And everyone was all fine and dandy with it when it came down to the final decisions that a lot of the districts that were struggling were predominantly brown kids. It halted the conversation. We talk about dominant narratives. There was a dominant narrative about Philadelphia schools, that the students were just underachieving and the teachers were bad, and that was the reason why these schools were failing, and people were buying into that for a long time. Do you still see that in this fight to get equitable funding? I see that within this fight towards education in general. I think that there are multiple reasons why districts could not be doing well. So funding, of course, is like one of the top ones. If we don't put the proper money into programming, we're not going to get what we want. But also, we need to make sure we have the right people in the proper programming to suit the communities that we're in. Education shouldn't be cookie cutter. And I think since education wasn't really designed 
for black, brown, poor people to move them towards upward mobility. It was designed to build a working class. If people get working class mixed up, I'm talking about industrial workers, not the next phase of millionaires and professional staff. When we think about that, we have to think about the whole narrative. So that narrative is still out there. That's why people shun away from public schools because the narrative is that teachers are failing, the teachers' schools aren't good. I think that as a community organizer, I do believe if we don't allow people to be involved in the process of what education should look like for a community, we're going to continue to miss the ball. Because when you're bringing in people that aren't from the area, don't have the same experiences, aren't a part of the culture. So if you're suburban, middle class, white or other, when you come to work in inner city schools, some things you might think is wrong, it may not be wrong, it may be different. And until we start building up culture, that difference is not failure. We'll continue to get this no matter where you are because there are a lot of black and brown kids that are going to high-performing schools that are still struggling because of that difference. I think that we have to continue to call out those things, that overarching narrative that black, brown, poor communities don't deserve this, they don't want it, they're this useless, and flip it and realize that you know white supremacy has continued to create that narrative, which is untrue. I think the way that we educate our children and the systems that are in place are failing our kids. It's not that our kids are not teachable. You had talked a little bit that charter schools and charterization got you into this fight. And that's another narrative that we see play out. Oh, these schools are failing. There's nothing that can be done. Here's a charter school that's going to fix this. And spreading charter schools throughout Philadelphia, that's how this is going to get resolved. What did you see about the charterization of your neighborhood school that made you disagree with that narrative? I think one of the narratives that they pushed out was this idea of options, that parents need to have options. My children's school was the only non-charter school in Nightstown at the time. All the other schools had already been taken over by charters. Because I'm not anti-charter, so that's one of the narratives I have to keep pushing. I'm not anti-charter. I'm just pro-fair. If we're talking about choices and parents being able to have options, I mean, I should be able to choose to send my kids to a charter school. You can't charterize all the schools around me and then say it's a this choice because if the only thing I have to choose from is charter, what's next? When we talk about charter schools, I'm not an expert. I actually don't know a lot about them, but it sounds not equal. It doesn't sound like it's a public thing. It relies on meritocracy and the idea that you have to deserve to be in there or else it's not for you. And that seems like the opposite of what I would think public education would be. I'm glad you brought that out because when you think about charters, there are different types of charters. So there's that Renaissance charter piece, which was the charterization of a neighborhood public school into like a charter system. And then there are freestanding long standalone charters that are focusing on pan-Africanism and you know character development for black children Mm -hmm. and then there are some others that focus on children of Asian descent as well not just children of Asian descent but they do a lot of work around culture of their own culture and then there are some for Latino children as well I can't just blink it all charters are bad Mm -hmm. but the idea of meritocracy is so true so they create this elitism towards certain schools it's a false narrative. And I've seen public school children fare a lot better than some children in charters. And no one wants to have that conversation because the narrative is that public schools are bad, they're falling apart, all the stuff that we hear. No one talks about those things that are happening at charters, like the creaming or creaming meaning keeping the children that are performing very well and then kicking out of the children that are struggling, which also affects kids. It's not healthy for a child just to continue to be kicked out of systems or saying that they're not wanted. 
the initial funding for public schools and charter schools come from the same pot, which is our public education dollars. But charter schools also have funders and backing through corporate sponsors and donors that public schools may not have. And they're usually relegated to just those, either the charter system or that particular school, because once again, we're talking about creaming. So depending on who the charter school serves, it opens up access to who that community has access to. So we think about private schools, right? We think about private schools, these parents with big law firms and all of this, all in one school, so they have these endowments and all that. Charter is not quite the same, but the, the proximity to power and wealth is different when the systems are allowed to cream the elite parents out the top. So, I mean, before, I'm thinking my generation, before charter schools, we just had special admission, public, and that was it. So now we have special admission, public, and charter. Our special admission schools still are doing really, really well. And some of that still happens with special admission schools in a different way, to be honest. And charters aren't under the same scrutiny as Philadelphia public schools. I know when I when we had the fight with Steel School, the charter office didn't even have a director for years. So it was no oversight. When we tried to look into the financial statements of charter schools, until we got a lot of lawyered up pieces of information. To me, that immediately put out a red flag is that if I'm spending my taxpayer money towards you and your organization, why can't I get clear data on what you're spending your money on and who you're giving it to? Or even where is your money coming from? And I think if we don't get it in the weeds, we can easily be hoodwinked. And that's kind of what this charter school thing looks like. Some charter schools are still not faring way better than some of our special, most of our special admission schools and are still falling in line just a little bit better than our traditional public schools. To me, that would bring the question, why charter? And I think when we think of a black and brown community, the public school system has historically failed black and brown children. Those same issues exist in charters. So I think that the narrative that charter is better is just lack of information around it. And if you have more money, marketing is a hell of a thing. If you open it up a new building, what's the first thing you do? You make it look nice, right? Keep in mind, our Philadelphia public schools, some of them are 50, 60, 100 years old. There's not bright and shiny. But if this is a new thing, of course I'm going to get people to come invest in this. But why? One of the things I always like to bring up, if charter schools are so good, why are they only pushed in black and brown communities? Nothing white people bring to black communities for good is not started for us. If somebody else has to be benefiting from this, maybe I didn't phrase this right, but if you want to try something new that you think is a really good thing, you're not going to give it to black and brown kids. They would try it out on their own kids. So until we understand, like, this charter school system was, like, using our kids as guinea pigs to figure out if an alternative system works, and then people realize they can make money off of it, and now we're in this whole big charter school, public school fight. But initially, that's not how the system America was designed to benefit black and brown kids. Nayeli is a student in Palumbo Academy, which is a special admissions school that is in one of those old buildings that is falling apart. What is our city or schools working on in order to address this and put funding into public schools so it's not this power dynamic where charter schools have corporations behind them and our schools have nothing behind them but state funding? I'm glad you picked Palumbo. And it kind of helps me transition to this conversation about tax abatement. So our city, our schools coalition did, did some research and we found that corporations or developers were receiving these huge tax breaks for these properties that are being built all around. And I'm going to pick Palumbo since you mentioned Palumbo, uh, which is one of the highest developed 
councilmatic districts in our city. So the millions of dollars in tax breaks that are going to individual properties that are in walking distance for Palumbo. So I'm talking about million dollars, over a million dollars per year in tax abatement given away. I think the repairs for Palumbo might be a couple million dollars. And we're talking about a million dollars in one property. That should bring alarm to us. So our city, our schools coalition, we ran those numbers across the city on tax abatements in every district around the city and did a comparison to how much money would be needed for the schools with the most costly repairs. All of this all came out right when the ceiling fell in at Palumbo. People were afraid to talk about it. This is a health crisis, ceilings falling down, and we know if it's 100 years old, it's lead and asbestos particles, mold probably floating around in this building and the first response wasn't to let the parents know. The teachers were silenced, and the parents that were outraged couldn't really speak up against it because some of them work for the city. These are the systems that are in place that are preventing our city and our public schools from getting better because people are afraid to speak up about these issues that are happening, the distance that some kids have to travel just to get to a school that's supposed to be better, and it's not. The city, our school district, the community as a whole, like these developers, these corporations that are right here in the city have chosen not to invest in our kids. There's no way is a building that's 100 years old falling apart in the neighborhood and then multi-million dollar properties are popping up all around it. I can't imagine how someone would even let that happen. And that's just one school. And Palumbo wasn't even on the list of the 45 schools that were most endangered. So we have over, I think, 216-odd school buildings here in Philly, and the majority of them have some level of severe or emergent repairs that need to happen. So our tax abatement has been like our largest campaign that we're pushing because we need to make sure our schools are cleaned up. Last season, the housing community was able to have a win around some things that we fought for together. And we realized that the city had pitted us against each other. So we decided to join forces together and make a final decision that any money that comes back from ending tax abatement would be split directly between education and housing. 55% towards schools, 45% towards housing because and until we begin to invest in our most marginalized community, which are our children, we'll continue to lose our city. Keep in mind, we have a housing crisis in this city. The majority of our kids are living below poverty level. There's a growing level of homelessness in our city. So we have kids that are homeless, living in poverty, and then going to these schools that are also falling apart for the lead, expenses, and mold. And then on the flip side, we don't want to invest in systems in place to help with character development, social-emotional healing, trauma-informed, like all these other investments that we could be putting money in, and we're not. And we can do it. It's not like we don't have the money because a part of our funding campaign not only includes ending the tax abatement, we talked about pilots, payment in lieu of taxes. Penn, one of the largest landowners in the city, do not pay taxes to our city. So in other places, Boston pays a large amount of money into education for payments in lieu of taxes, and we're asking for the same thing. Penn should pay their fair share. When we looked on the research around tax abatements, a lot of them are right there within Penn's campus as well. So that's like a double whammy. Not only aren't you paying taxes to our city, we're giving you tax abatement on properties that you're building in our city and you're still not investing one way or another. And I think we need to continue to look at how we're funding our schools. We had the soda tax that went towards community schools, the rebuild program, and some other things. But that was a regressive tax. That was a tax on poor people. Once again, the cigarette tax, once again for schools, once again on poor working people in the city. Instead of just going after the most obvious, which is tax abatement pilots, 
So a lot of this work we've been doing with our City, Our Schools campaign, which is a coalition of organizations fighting around various issues in the city, but how we can connect the dots of all our campaigns to figure out what our target should be. And right now the target is funding. How can people get involved if they want to join in this fight and push for funding for our schools and push with people power mm -hmm. against this corporate power mm -hmm. and developer power and make sure that the public wealth of education is funded. How can they get involved? The easiest thing to do right now is a petition around toxic schools. We're trying to get 3,000 signatures. I think we might be at like 1,500 by now. So that's the easiest thing is to sign a petition around tax abatements to fund toxic schools and making it a crisis in the city, like making it an emergency. The next thing that you can also do is uh, payments in lieu of taxes. We have a group that's doing a lot of work, pushing PIN to pay their fair share. That's our second campaign that we're working really hard on. And the tax abatements. So there, we've been having forums around tax abatements over the last couple months. I'm pretty sure they're gonna continue to happen, as well as lobbying days at city council. So that's something else that you can do. Even if you can't come out to city council, we, you can use your cell phone and call your council person from work or wherever you are. So there are ways to get involved and you can connect with OCOS. To join Kendra and Our City, Our Schools in our fight for a fully funded public education, you can find the petition and a volunteer form in this episode's description by going to our website, reclaimphiladelphia.org, and clicking on Our Political Moment. Thanks for listening to Our Political Moment. This show is produced by Reclaim Philadelphia. Our team includes Sergio Sea, Kelly Martin, and Leah Sorrentino. Special thanks to our storyteller, Nayeli Perez, and Our City, Our Schools organizer, Kendra Brooks, for her interview. Our theme music for this episode is by Sheer Meg, and music provided by Pre Columbian and Nina Keith, who has a new album coming out soon. Want to subscribe to Our Political Moment? You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or on our website. We always want to hear from you. Make sure to comment on this episode with your thoughts or questions about the show.